You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. You know, Jesus made this one statement that separates him from every other spiritual, religious figure. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me. Folks, let me tell you something. That really narrows it down, doesn't it? Boy, I'll say it really. So not all roads lead to God, folks. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the only way to have fellowship with God the Father. Sure, there are many religions in this world. It could be mildly said that most people in this world believe in a higher power. They even believe in an afterlife. As Pastor Mike details the death of Jacob in Genesis, he brings a connection to the New Testament through Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can boldly claim he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to God except through him. It's the cornerstone of Christianity. Today, use that truth as a driving force for your testimony. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 49 as he continues his message, The Death of a Saint. another example of this. Now, this was not true of all of the members of Jacob's family. For example, Ishmael, who was Abraham's son, was gathered, as we are told, in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 17. This just goes to prove the point that I'm trying to make. Ishmael, Abraham's son, we are told in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 17, was gathered to his people. But His body did not lie in rest with his ancestors. He wasn't buried in the cave of Machpelah, as was other members of his family. But nevertheless, the Bible testifies to the fact that he was gathered together with his people in spirit, you see, not in body. So the point is, he died in faith, and thus was gathered to those who died before him in faith, in spirit. Their spirits were gathered together. Now, we'll talk some more about that in a moment, what that suggests, what that implies. But now let's move on to our second point. It is hard to overemphasize, and this becomes our second point now, the importance of this kind of faith. That is, looking to the eternal perspective, having that eternal focus, that kind of faith. You see, Jacob's was not merely a deathbed 
variety of faith. This faith is a life-transforming orientation of those who have learned the passing nature of this life and the overriding permanence and importance of the life to come. As I've already suggested, having that eternal perspective. To know that there's something more than what we experience in this life, you see. Looking forward to eternity. Let me give you an example of this from the scriptures. For example, Abraham in the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 9 and 10. We are told that Abraham lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He looked for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And thus, this should be true of all of God's people. You know, if you think about it, it actually validates our conversion from sin to God. You might say Christians are otherworldly. That's our focus. And that's the emphasis of what we are really all about. That's what we are truly looking forward to. Now, don't misunderstand. Let me clarify that statement. Let me balance it out by saying... It's not that we can't enjoy the world that God has created. I mean, for example, I marvel at nature, the grandeur of it, the mountains, the oceans and such. But we need to realize that we're living in a fallen world that is one day destined to perish. You know, read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're not to set our affections upon it. You know, Paul tells us this in his letter to the church at Colossae, in the book of Colossians in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, and that word if, if you look at it in the original Greek, it implies fact. If you then were raised in Christ, it's a reference to our conversion experience, we're born again of the Spirit of God, so it denotes a fact. If then you were raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above. In other words, a contemporary interpretation of this would be, listen, stop messing around with the things of the flesh, the things of the world. That's not to be our focus. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, set our affections on the things that pertain to eternal life. That's the encouragement. That's the exhortation by Paul to the church of Colossae. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, he goes on and he says, Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. Now, of course, the world doesn't like this sort of orientation, do they? And I understand this. The reason being is that they're just simply spiritually ignorant. Now, I don't mean to be derogatory. But nevertheless, the Bible tells us that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. And that's exactly why we need to be born again of the Spirit of God, to be awakened to spiritual things, you see. And so the truth of the matter is is that they're just simply, the unbeliever, the unconverted, is spiritually ignorant of these things. But here's the problem. When Christians profess faith in things that can't be seen, or at least the unbeliever can't see them, or exhibit a loyalty to unseen things, eternal things, they resent us. They mock us. 
Christianity to them is regarded as something that is useless. It's sort of like a pie-in-the-sky philosophy. They refer to it as a drug. Christianity is the drug of the masses. They suggest that it makes people insensitive to real life. It makes us turn our backs on our real duties to our fellow man. But you know what? Listen, just the opposite is true. Because simply just because I'm interested in the things of God, in eternal things, it doesn't mean that I'm not interested in people. In fact, my interest in people, because I have that kind of a view, is actually intensified. Isn't that true? And that's why we're always looking for an opportunity, an open door, to share our faith with an unbeliever. At least I hope that's our desire. Well, in fact, that brings us to our third point. And that is my concern for God motivates my concern for men. You see, I'm concerned that men, in an attempt to gain the world and its pleasures, lose their souls. You know, last night we went to my sister's birthday party in Manhattan. And a lot of my nieces and nephews were there and other members of my sister's husband's side of the family were present, who I've known over the years. I mean, I grew up with these people, and many of which don't know the Lord. They think they have some kind of a relationship with God. And all through the night, I was looking for opportunities to share Christ with them. And I found it sort of interesting that one of the sons of my sister asked me to, before we had dinner, would you come up and pray a prayer? And so I let them know that, is it okay if I mention the name of Jesus? If you want me to pray, I'm not going to hold back. And I let him know that if I'm going to pray, I'm going to use the name of Jesus. Is that okay? Because there were people there who actually attend the synagogue here in Manhattan, and they don't acknowledge or recognize Christ as the Savior. So I just wanted to make sure, because I didn't want to offend anybody. I didn't want to you know, come off as being obnoxious or something or, you know, beating the drum and, you know, that kind of a thing. I was just there to celebrate my sister's birthday. But again, at the same time, I was looking for all kinds of inroads, particularly with my nieces and nephews, you know, to be able to share Christ with them. So God was good. So I got up and I knew that there were those who attended the synagogue. So I, I prayed the prayer. I asked God's blessing on the group that had gathered together to celebrate my sister's birthday. I asked a blessing upon my sister. And then I closed it out by saying, recognizing the fact that there were members of this Jewish synagogue that were present, a lot of members of that Jewish synagogue that was present. My, actually, my sister attends that synagogue there in Manhattan. And I pray this prayer in the name of the Father, who is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose son is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I covered all the bases, you know. <laughs> And then I say that to my sister as I walked off of the, you know, where I'd been praying the prayer, and I just gave the microphone back to them. But I hope that's your desire as well, you know, to seek out those open doors, to be able to share your faith. I mean, it's something that God puts within each and every one of us because we have that eternal perspective, right? We're concerned about the souls of other people. You know, if you're not doing that, you got to wonder, you know, how important is Christianity to you? Is it something that you consider as being precious? You know, the Bible refers to it as, you know, we hold this earthen treasure in our mortal bodies. You know, think about that. Do you consider it a treasure, the gospel and knowing Christ? And, you know, how do you value it? 
And if, in fact, you do value it, wouldn't you want to pass it along to other people? Wouldn't you want to share it with other people? You know, I think it might be a way of gauging whether our Christianity is real and is as important to us as it should be. And so I'm concerned that men, in an attempt to game the world and its pleasures, at the same time, lose their souls. I'm concerned that they be blessed in this life and that in the end, their soul be gathered to God for eternity. And of course, it all depends on turning to God. You know, as I was sharing, I was getting a lot of this kind of feedback. Oh, you know, it's all the same God. No, it's not all the same God. You know, who's the God that you serve? You know, your God can be mammon. It could be the world. It could be money. It could be pleasure. I mean, you know, whatever is the driving force within your life becomes your God. Isn't that true? Right? You know, so it's not all the same. And again, I didn't want to like get into this whole big thing, you know, and I set the stage. I planted the seed, right? I'm going to trust that sometime down in the future, you know, I'm going to have another opportunity to water and fertilize that seed and, you know, get some of my relatives back, you know, here to our fellowship to attend our services so that I can, you know, further instruct them through the word. But it all depends on turning to God through faith in Christ while in this life. You know, someone expressed to me last night, well, you know, it all leads to the same God. You know, Jesus made this one statement that separates him from every other spiritual, religious figure. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me. Folks, let me tell you something. That really narrows it down, doesn't it? Boy, I'll say it really. So not all roads lead to God, folks. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the only way to have fellowship with God the Father. And thus, we urge men and women to make that decision, and then after they've made that decision, to stay there. So, the unbeliever, pie in the sky, Christianity, the drug of the masses, they're dropped out. Those Christians have dropped out. They're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Folks, the truth of the matter, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, anyway, there's something else that I want to draw your attention to, and this is our final point. So, something else here, and this brings us to our fourth point, and that is the cave of Machpelah. That's the actual way of pronouncing it. I've already killed it like three times. It's Machpelah. That's the actual way of pronouncing it. So, I want you to notice here in our text, let's go back to our text, the length to which Jacob seems to go in describing the cave of Machpelah, right, in which his forefathers were buried. Can I read that again one more time? Let's go back to verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place, chapter 23. There they buried Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased for the sons of Heth, or from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Okay, 
So why, as his last request, why did he speak so precisely and seriously about that place? Well, the answer is simply, so to remind his sons that are now gathered around his deathbed, right, he has a captive audience, so to remind his sons of the way and the reasons for which it had come into the possession of his family. You see, Machpelah was the patriarchal connection there in the land of Canaan. Because think about it, up until the present, they had been living there, you know, prior to them coming down to Egypt to be sustained during the seven years of famine, they had been living in the land of Canaan as strangers, in the land of promise. But nevertheless, they believed that one day God was truly going to give them that land even as it was promised to Abraham right from the very beginning. And so their burial there was proof of their faith in that promise. And that's exactly what Jacob was seeking to pass along to his sons. You know, one commentator put it like this, Jacob wished to live in a place which the inhabitants of the country knew to be the property of his family and expected that his seed after him would still retain their hope and desire of living in a country so much valued by their ancestors, the land which God promised to give them, and where he was to dwell among them and bless them. And so that's exactly what Jacob is trying to pass along to his sons before he actually expires. But also, something else, this also uh, provides for us the explanation of the Christian's proper concern for the world's affairs. Because think about it, only the Christian's concern is greater than that of even Jacob's. See if you can find the connection in this. Because we serve Jesus, the Lord of all, isn't he the Lord of all? Now, not every person have lined up and made that decision for Christ, but nevertheless, he's still Lord of all. When he comes back to claim the world once again unto himself, the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. And because Jesus is Lord of all, Christianity, therefore, is a world religion. It's the only true religion. And thus, it must have a world concern. You see, ours is not a segregated land of promise, you know, assigned only to the land of Canaan. Thus, there is no part of human life or endeavor that we should not strive to bring into subjection to Jesus Christ. Thus, it is a concern for Christ and his kingdom That makes the difference. I want you to think about this. Listen, the greatest benefactors that this world has ever known were men and women who brought the greatest good, were men and women who emphasized the importance of seeing the unseen. Hebrews chapter 11. Guys like Abraham, Moses, David. Think about the impact that they had on our world. 
contemporary examples of this. How about John Calvin, who actually reformed the social as well as the spiritual life of the city of Geneva, who was more concerned about decent, proper living in this world than were others of his time. How about the Puritans between the 16th and the 17th century who actually reformed the Church of England, who laid the foundation for the greatness of England and that of her American colony, the United States of America? How about Jonathan Edwards, who is probably the most notable of the Puritan writers and the effect that he had upon the world? Listen, no one had a more otherworldly view than the Puritans. But this didn't stop them from being benefactors of the common people. They were all fired up by seeing the unseen. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, referencing this, says, and I quote, When men forget the next world and concentrate only on this present life, this world becomes a kind of living hell with confusion and lawlessness and immorality and vice rampant. It is only men who have a complete view of life who really know how to live in their world. The only man who really respects life in this world is the man or woman who knows that this world is only the anti-chamber to the next world. It is only the man or woman who knows himself to be a child of God and who knows that this world is God's world, who is really concerned about decency in this world. Well, anyway, let's go back to our text here, the last verse, and then we'll close things out here. In verse 33, notice, we have the record of Jacob's death. There in verse 33, and when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last breath, and was gathered to his people. He went to live with his fathers. He'll live with them throughout eternity. But you know what? More importantly, he was gathered together with Jesus, which is so far better. You know, George Larson, and I'll leave you with this, George Larson, in his commentary, concludes, and I quote, live by faith as the patriarchs did and you will also be gathered to them when you die. How wretched will we be if we see millions with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and ourselves cast into utter darkness. But how excellent will our joys be if we are admitted to those blessed regions where our fellowship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with an innumerable multitude of saints and angels will make but a small part of our happiness. In my father's house There's a place for me In my father's house Where I long to be oh, my When you look back at your life, what moments stand out to you? There are probably some pretty great ones, getting married, having kids, graduations, and celebrations. But I imagine there are also a few you'd rather not remember. The ones that come back to run through your head at night as you try to fall asleep. When we take a look at the stories of some of the Genesis characters, we see it all. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. These people you meet made their fair share of mistakes, but that didn't disqualify them from being used by God. God built a nation from human beings who were far from perfect. And guess what? He wants to use you too. God has a plan for your life, and you can faithfully follow Him in the way He has made for you. You can be forgiven of your sins and start fresh, remembering the faithfulness of God since the beginning of time. We're so glad we got to spend time with you today in the Word with Pastor Mike Venizio and in my Father's house. This program is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. Check us out online at harvestnyc.org. There you'll find service times and our easy-to-find location. We have easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. Come by and see us. If you aren't close enough to drop by, you can find links to our online streaming and more on our website, harvestnyc.org. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're out of time for now, but come back and feast on the Word with us next time in My Father's House. Oh, my heart, not be troubled.